Kia ora. The Auckland Theatre Company and Prayer's Theatre season of a fine balance has begun at Q Theatre and is on until July 6. Tickets are available at qtheatre.co.nz. We're sharing the Script to Stage podcast episodes featuring theatre makers from this show so you can hear more about this fantastic work before or after you see the show. Enjoy! Hi, this is Script to Stage for a Fine Balance. Every week leading up to the opening night of a Fine Balance at Q Theatre, we are sitting down with the makers behind the Auckland Theatre Company and Prayas Theatre season to chat about the world of the play and the creatives behind it. I am Shananda Chatterjee, Assistant Director of A Fine Balance. When we discussed the emergency early on in the process of making a fine balance, we found that history had been rewritten for the younger generations. Depending on your background, including your age, where your family was from in India, your political alignment, everyone had received a different version of what happened during Indira Gandhi's emergency. Now, to chat more about this today, we've got some of our press Fano around the table to share their experiences. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. Um, what I might do is just go around the table and get you guys to introduce yourselves and give me a little bit of your background. Hi, I'm Sneha. Um, so I have been with Prayas for the last four years. Um, and I, I grew up in India, moved to New Zealand about 12 years ago, spent 23 years of my life in India, mm-hmm. uh, grew up in Pune, yeah. uh, which is a city in the state of Maharashtra. So I did my high school, university, did a postgrad, worked in India for a year or so, and then moved to New Zealand as a student, did a few more qualifications. Um, yeah, and here I am. Hi everyone, so I'm going to give you the life of Alicia in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Uh, born and raised in Mumbai, India, which is very close to Pune, where Sneha's from. It's uh, in a state called Maharashtra. Uh, I was 23 when I moved to New Zealand. Uh, I studied uh, and worked in India before I came here uh, and have been here for about seven years now with Prayas for two. Hi, my name is Malik and I uh, grew up in the United Arab Emirates uh, for 17 years of my life. I moved away and came of age uh, going to university in uh, Canada um, and moved to New Zealand in early 2016 to do my master's degree. Um, I am a newcomer and a uh, freshman, I suppose, uh, when it comes to prayers. Excellent. Thank you so much. You are. You are a novice in the prayers world. (laughs) So thank you guys for being here today. Um, let's just start uh, by by telling the audience about how you first heard about the emergency. Um, did you understand it? What was, what was the information that was given to you? How did you come about it? So the state board that I studied in mm-hmm. uh, had about two paragraphs on the emergency, is what I remember from school. I actually Googled it and looked it up yesterday and yes it's still the same content that we had back in school because it just came right rushing back into my head Mm. when I read it it's just been reformatted but uh, we spent about a year studying about 16 the 1600s and the 1700s and and yes it's important but uh, India's history after independence is covered off in paragraphs Mm. it's Mm. decades it's the 1950s the 1960s the 1970s you get two paragraphs per decade there's so much that happens in a decade but that's all you get as far as curriculum goes yeah Uh, uh, we weren't told much about it back in school my parents didn't talk about it uh, at all so that's yeah i didn't even think about the emergency as a part of the history of uh, a significant part of india's history Hmm. yeah why do you think that is 
Because I remember this as well, having having done most of my secondary education in India, that and I was in a different state, a different board. I was in the national board, which was CBSE. Um, I again also remember studying a lot of history up to the independence from the British, and then not much after that. Um, do you guys have any thoughts about why that might be? I guess we're still kind of recovering from the whole independence, kind of getting a constitution and implementing it. I think people just got caught up into kind of making it work, making it happen. Um, Maybe because the politicians didn't want anyone to capture the reality of some of the happenings posted. I mean, we know with the emergency Indira Gandhi had posed in a lot of restrictions with the press about, you know, the speeches that the politicians gave. They couldn't publish those. Um, you know, she sh- she shut down. You know, she was censoring a lot of information that was going to the public. And I wonder if informally that has always been the case post-independence while we've been finding our feet with how to make mm. things work. Um, it's It's been messy. So might as well keep that under wraps. Hmm. Yeah. Now, Malik, you have been really quiet over there. And I know that your experience of the emergency is slightly different to maybe ours. So do you want to talk to us about what it is that happened, uh, what the consequences of the emergency was for your family? Um, my parents grew up in uh, in Maharashtra as well, um, like, uh, like uh, other um present here. Um, they uh, went to university in uh, in Pune, um, and well, uh, for their for their master's degrees, um, they went to university in uh, in different places uh, in Bombay um, and in Aurangabad for their bachelor's degrees, um, and they. Um, they saw uh, the emergency. They, they saw this experience of um, a lot of their friends at college uh, being arrested for expressing their political opinions. Um, wow! Throughout the mid seventies, and I think that um, for them was this massively dispiriting had had this massive dis- massively dispiriting effect on on their ability to think for themselves because to them education and higher education in particular was this liberating um, force in their lives they didn't necessarily have the most um, calm or peaceful um, domestic uh, uh, environments to come back to Um, they saw it as uh, a forum for expressing themselves outside of uh, their parents um, uh, strictly and very rigidly defined parameters of what was right and what was wrong and what should and shouldn't be um, discussed in in the open, um, and going beyond. I mean, watching people be be persecuted for for what they um, believed mm. was absolutely devastating. I think for them. Right. Um, it came as an immense relief, um, something that my parents didn't discuss with me until I was um, uh, in my sort of late teens. And once I had gone through adolescence, um, they would not speak to me of the emergency growing up at all. Um, I, I learned about the emergency for the most part from my friend's parents. 
Wow. Okay. Um, and this is in where where you grew up in in, in Abu Dhabi, in Abu the Dhabi. capital of the United Arab Emirates. So um, I and and also from uncles and aunts, and also from my grandparents, who were happier to speak about um, how the emergency affected them. Mm. Um, but its direct impact on my parents was that um, they were immensely relieved when uh, the country came to be run um, by. Uh, individuals and political parties that they didn't see as oppressors. Right. Um, and they they were massively kind of, they, they had this, this sense of loss and this sense of grief when in 1980 um, the tables were turned again and um, uh, Indira Gandhi was swept back to power. Right. Okay. Um, so they started their master's degrees knowing that they were going into a general election, which incidentally was the last time that my parents voted um, following which they made an active choice not to vote um, because they had lost all confidence entirely um, in uh, in our sense of democracy, um, which probably influenced their decision in the early 80s once they finished their master's degrees to move away from India for good mm. um, and move away to a place where um, there wasn't the constant uh, letting down of hopes and ambitions. Um which they found in the United Arab Emirates. Cool. That's very interesting. So their kind of journey uh, almost reflects what Manic is going through in the in the play of Fine True. Balance, because yep. he's that uh, you know university going, college going student, and he's he is Dina's informant of all the happenings in the you know in college, and he says that people are just being arrested left, right, and center, and there is mm. a lot of um, you know censorship that's going on, etc. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and also, what happens with his friend Avinash? Um, oh, that's in the book. Mm. Yeah, that's in the book. And uh, Sneha, while we are with you, um, you mentioned that your father was a political. Is he an activist or an MP? Uh, no, he was a local politician. Oh, cool. Um, so, so growing and up, with, with with which party? Congress I. <laughs> so that is the same as, as Indira Gandhi's, Gandhi's party. party. Yeah. Was he active during the time of the emergency? No, no, he would have been way too young then. Um, so he was a politician way after the whole thing. Um, but he was part of the Congress High. And growing up, I, I was way too young when he was actively a politician. Um, I do remember some conversations with that used to happen in the household around Indira Gandhi. Mm -hmm. And there was like maybe a mention of emergency here and there, but nothing in detail mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I guess, because he came from the Congress I, where everyone was, was staunch supporters of uh, Indira Gandhi, I guess no one ever wanted to speak um, about the emergency, considering the whole negative aspect that would kind of bring about. Um, so yeah, so again, for me, it's interesting that um, my school curriculum, the board that I studied under, didn't really have a lot about the emergency at all. So the first time I probably heard about it was when I saw the fine balance for the first time when Prayas um, had it in 2015. Yeah. yeah. So that was the first time when I was like, oh, there was something like an emergency that happened in the country. Um, but for whatever reasons, I didn't really explore it as much then. Um, but since being part of the fine balance again, I guess that's um, triggered me to kind of find out a bit more about, you know, what happened. And reading the book definitely helped mm. because that opened my eyes to a whole different world that I didn't know existed. Was there anything which was like, oh, my God, what was like the most interesting things in your research that you found? Um, 
I think the whole um, mass sterilization thing and forcing right. people to actually uh, have it done, mm. that really kind of, um, yeah. yeah. I actually found in my research that in, that was not the last time that India had forced mass really? sterilization. In fact, 2013? Yeah. What? And something like 15? Mm. Yeah, there's been some mass sterilization. I don't know the entire background of why, but I, I've been finding more and more because I've been doing some research to put into the play, um, you know, fill in with sound bites and things like that. And I've just been discovering so much information about other sterilizations and how it has affected more the rural women. Uh, than men and it's just fascinating and I'm like wow. why did we not know about this why are we so like oblivious no which is what I find the most fascinating about this as well because like Sneha said she read the book it opened her eyes to a world that she didn't have any idea about yeah where the books set in India Technically, we've all lived in India. We should yeah. probably have an idea of stuff like this happening. Yeah. We've been we've been living in a bubble that has been so oblivious to all of this. Yeah. It sort of opens your mind to the fact that India is just so different. Yeah. Uh, someone five kilometers away from you could be living a completely different life. Yeah. And, and those bubbles, know. you know, like, for instance, in the 2016, the United States elections, we've discovered that social bubbles can, can you know, impact on uh, politics and views of people and people don't see outside their own sort of group and um we are not in a social like a social media fueled bubble it's just mm. one that exists because there is so much otherwise i guess it's almost like this unconscious bias that we have developed that helps yep. us to navigate the chaos you know the chaos yeah, yeah mm. exactly um in addition to navigating chaos i also think it's a uh, a coping mechanism to deal with so much trauma mm, because sure. um being um sort of uh surrounded by and being completely enveloped by trauma is a, a daily occurrence for anyone who walks um, in the street in, yes. in most um, urban or rural areas. There is a lot of um, extremely visible, extremely palpable um, injustice that yep. is meted out yes. um, to people and you can, you see it. And, and the, I, I sometimes wonder whether our parents and our grandparents don't make the active and conscious choice it's, to simply block things from their memories mm -hmm. um, because uh, it you feel that there isn't there is a feeling of helplessness that comes from standing there realizing that you're human. this is going to keep going exactly the same way as it has been going for years it gets normalized after a while and you don't think about it it was fascinating because you know when we do so we've been doing these informal discussions with Prayas and some of our Fano called Adda and in that I think one of the first sessions that we had we discovered how much trauma actually individually all of us faced and we've just normalized it so easily so I can imagine that the that these rural rural societies are otherwise you know like um the bubbles that they live in um so alicia tell me when you first started researching um uh, about a fine balance and the emergency did you speak to your peers did you speak to your parents uh, what kind of reactions did you get from the people that you were trying to get some information out of so when i started work started working on the production uh the first thing I probably did was ask mom, dad, 
do a call out on Facebook for friends, uh, for friends and family to let me know if they remembered anything from the emergency, what they remembered was covered off in the curriculum because it wasn't quite fresh in my head. Uh, similar responses, not much was covered, more needs to be done. Ask dad and mom. Well, dad was about 14 or 15 years old when it happened. Mom was nine, so mom has zero memory of it. Uh, plus our family uh, as a whole, I know, was living in a part of India that didn't quite get affected by the emergency as where, much. Where were they living? Which was in Mumbai. Okay. Yeah. Uh, our families weren't very politically aligned. They just, it, it probably just came and went and they didn't even know it. Uh, Dad, on the other hand, said, oh, I don't remember much. Uh, just came and went. I was in school. I was 15 years old. Don't know much. Family didn't talk about it. That was his stand about a couple of months ago. And then yesterday he tells me, oh, you know, uh, your grandfather, like his dad, used to hate Indira Gandhi. And I was like, why, why did he hate Indira Gandhi? Don't ask me all that. I don't know. But he used to hate Indira Gandhi. He used to sit with a newspaper outside on the veranda every day. <laughs> and just look for news to see when she's going to lose the election or when she's going to get out of power. <laughs> wow. And he used to follow this guy or really support this guy called Raj Narayan. I'd never heard of him before. Googled him. Turns out he was the guy that had, who won the case against her uh, for the malpractice uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 in yeah, the elections. Right. Yeah, and uh, after that, in the 1977 elections, he fought against her in her constituency in Raybareli. Raybareli, yeah, yeah. And, and he won mm. against her. And apparently yes. my grandpa was happy that day. He was <laughs> so happy. And dad remembers that. It's a visual that's come into his head now that I've been harping on about the emergency for a couple of months now. He, he didn't it mention it. It takes a while because yeah. people like forget, like you said, you know, if if, if, I, I am just assuming that most of us grew up in a middle class environment and I feel like we were probably the least affected um, in terms of good or bad mm-hmm. um, with maybe your exception Molik because your your parents were active students at that time mm. at a college level where things are like the intelligentsia is at its peak um, I asked my parents also and uh, my dad was like oh it was so good for the country because the trains were all running on time all the bank managers had to get there on time no Babu was you know uh, meant to be there at nine was always at nine he wasn't there at ten thirty, uh, eating his samosa you know like that is the the typical bureaucratic things that you hear in India it's yep. like everybody's lazy things like that so that was my dad's um point of view he was like yeah the country was running like clockwork and he was close to 20 so I guess he was also in that college environment but he was in a um like a government, not a government college, but a, a not a politically charged kind of environment. My mother, however, was uh, at, um, uh, I forget the name of the college, but it is one where that has produced a lot of um, in political and economic kind of figures. And she was like, I just stayed out of it. I went and came back. So she actively did not participate Mm. Um, what was your did you have any interesting things that your parents came up or people around you when you started researching about it Um, so my source of information was my grandfather so I called him and I was like so what happened during this time so he worked for the Indian Railways um, so he was a station master as they call it then did he love it he oh he loved it it was (laughs) (laughs) all his life he ran on time yeah (laughs) and that's the first 
first thing he said to me as well, oh, it was amazing. You know, the trains were running on time. All the government offices were like really working so well. Everyone was punctual. Do you know and- why? Because like I, I realized it was such a big deal because mm. when we were chatting with Amit Uncle um, about the history of the emergency, he said that apparently there was some kind of rail strike for almost two years leading up to that point. Mm. Oh. So, yeah. Okay. Sorry. To- no, that's no. all right. But- and that's frustration. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Talking the middle that. class frustration. Yeah, but I mean, right. pot belly frustration. They just want to get to work on time, you know. <laughs> yeah, do their thing and come yeah, back on do time. Yeah, thing and come back. Yeah, but the other thing he probably mentioned was that they were because I asked him. So were they, you know, all these activists on the street? Was there like some you know violence, some demonstrations? Like you know, how was the environment? And he was like, no, there were some people creating a bit of nuisance. But um, I had all the local politicians from the Congress come up to me and tell me that, oh, you don't worry. About anything, we'll make sure everything is running smoothly and you will be protected. So he was pretty satisfied uh, about that. Because apparently, all the other political activists were incarcerated. Mm. Yes. As soon as the emergency Mm. was declared. All the opposition, all of them, yeah. mm. were put in jail. Yes, which was again another thing that I found out from our chat with Amit Uncle. Is like he said that because they were all incarcerated together, they then formed an alliance so that when yes. they came back that seventy-seven election or whatever, mm. yeah. mm. yes. they were able to topple her. Yeah, yes. um, so and that, take yeah. power. So that Raj Narayan was part of that with mm. Adal Bihari Vajpayee, Muraji yes. Desai, and. That's right. Who went on to lead the country? So, Malik, when you finally um, spoke to your parents about the emergency, what was their reactions? Like, what was their story? What did they tell you? They started off, they did not give me an un- unprompted story. So they had to be sort of um, nudged quite a lot. Mm. Uh, I was doing um, my capstone project for my first year at university. And I was looking at the evolution of um, how people came to vote um, and the social sphere um, in India throughout the 70s and the 80s, um, because it was the advent of, I was fascinated by the advent of uh, television um, and right. how it changed people's lives. Um, And I I asked them about the emergency in the context of you were being communicated to through newspapers and radio primarily in in the 70s. Um, What was that experience like? Um, And it needed a lot of prodding. But uh, my my mother um, said... uh, well, um, she started off with the trains ran on time. Um, the This is going to be the catchphrase for this like podcast. The trains ran the on train time. Ran on time. <laughs> um, she said uh, that the people were afraid uh, about uh, people were afraid at government posts in particular of of being late. Um, they were afraid of of asking for petty bribes. Um, she remembers uh, the experience of um, seeing some of her acquaintances, some of her friends, um, and it took sort of the mid- sort of ten minutes into that conversation where she got into the experience of of uh, seeing some of her friends rounded up and arrested. They were um, activists. Um, they were they were certainly politically active on campus. I see. And she spoke to the experience of of uh, saying that after that point, it didn't seem like being a political person or having political thoughts at all um, was uh, safe. 
So uh, it was better just to stay away from politics and be apolitical um, because clearly there are consequences that people in power have um, when it comes to uh, expressing those in the context of someone who is ultimately um, the most powerful person in the country mm-hmm. and decides that everyone and everything who doesn't agree with her um, is a, a is threat to her treasonous. personally. Yeah. It's treasonous, um, like some sort of... Um, monarch yeah um they i guess we again going back to that history i learned so much from mamatanku um at our at our podcast about the history of the emergency and um he was saying that there's uh, the indira gandhi's 20 point program was majorly to do with disciplining the country and bringing some sort of order to it and then sanjay gandhi took it to the next level of like i think evilness so to speak <laughs> and um he introduced the five point program which kind of we see um a lot of in a fine balance uh, in in the play um where the sterilization and the beautification of the cities and other things come into play he abolished uh, he uh, wanted to abolish dowry as well as part of that program if i'm not mistaken that was yeah yes, which was, i mean on just like, on face value yeah. none of it looks awful you know like the 20 point program didn't look awful uh, i mean like who doesn't want the government to work as they should be who doesn't want to you know not stand in queue for hours at the bank just to get like one stamp because mm. that's a, that's the plight of the people even now like yes. try get an internet internet connection in mm. the country and you're like wow i will just live off rocks mm. <laughs> you know like yeah. so yeah and and it feels like that if you hadn't realized what kind of consequences it could have in that like the the political side of things and then of course the rural consequences mm. you would never imagine that it no. was actually a bad thing no mm. face value it looked okay yeah you know and i guess that's why a lot of the country was okay with it mm. i think also in the cities the way people experienced it was very different to what happened exactly. in rural areas like i remember asking my grandfather specifically about the sterilization and i said so how was it he's like oh didn't really see much of it in the city but then again while i was doing my research um i think there was a figure of 8 8 million people were sterilized i think it was 6 million or something along those li- a lot of people mm-hmm. yeah a lot um, of people I mean, so where did they find these people if it was not in the city <laughs> it was in the rural areas rural exactly. it was in the actual rural areas again um history of the emergency with amit uncle um <laughs> uh you really like i i found so many fascinating things like um y- yeah so the this maybe the beautification was more on the um and actually that's something my dad said as well all oh, the cities just looked so much cleaner um mm. they did because the slums were removed of course mm. um people and removed too so mm. yeah well they just brought bulldozers and like i remember this well i remember this happening in the 90s in delhi so it's not like it's gone away mm-hmm. um people you know it depends on what was happening and i believe it, like india's not isolated like we shouldn't give it that much flack because um <laughs> i hear accounts of the 2011 rugby world cup and a lot of homeless people being forcefully mm. removed from their places um there you know like covered places that they lived with especially in the city so mm. that happens everywhere mm-hmm. and the great thing i find about about delhi anyway where i grew up 
every time you removed the slums, like a month later, they were back. Yeah. <laughs> it oh, was yeah. so great. The people are so resilient. And at that point, you know, like growing up middle class and, and obviously only knowing the values that your parents impart upon you, you think, oh, what an eyesore. Mm. But and now, like, you're actually especially removed from it. You know, mm. I feel like, and you guys tell me how you feel, because mm-hmm. I feel like if I was still in India, potentially I would not see the, I wouldn't feel empathy for those people no. that were removed and kept coming back. Because at that point I was just like, oh, I saw her. Yep. And you get desensitized to it. You're not thinking from their point of view. You don't put yourself in their feet. It's easy for us to talk about all these things sitting here. Yeah, but... mm, I I guess like growing up, you know, all of us um, grew up with, you know, the maids coming at home who Mm. potentially are people living in the slums. Yeah. Mm. Um, And all we related to was whether she came on time, Mm. did the work properly Mm. and went away. And we were not unkind to them. No, we weren't. But we didn't really have that sense of empathy that I guess is coming through now. Yeah. Um, Getting a better sense of what the experience would be like. Which we wouldn't need to have at that point because if we were to put ourselves back into where we came from in India, we'd probably be living our lives a lot more differently. Yeah, mm. and it's the clockworkness of it all that yeah. just kind of has to. You just can't be bothered. Yeah, yeah. Malik, do you have any any thoughts on that? Um, I reckon uh, I I I struggle with this every time I go visit. Mm. Uh, I struggle with the experience of mm. of knowing that hey, um, this uh, this person who is doing something for me probably lives in a very very different environment. Um, and so normally I'm like I'm, I made this for lunch today. Would you like some? Um, and that's my my extremely minuscule contribution to. Mm. Um, to, uh, I suppose, sleeping a little bit easier at night, um, Mm. as well as kind of going, I have put out in the world something that is important to me, which is to feel empathy for um, and express empathy for another human being um, who, through no fault of their own, um, has found themselves Mm. sort of... in in the circumstances that they they live with. I tell you, though, like... If you're living there, you know that the maids have their own union. Mm. Yes. They they have more rights now than they used to have. And they have holidays. I mean, sometimes I feel like they have better holiday schemes than I do. Oh, right I'll need sassy. She's, she's, she's all of so them sassy. She won't show up if she they doesn't want to. They make it hard to, to empathize yeah, with yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think but this is like an entirely whole conversation in itself. Yeah, I know. And, 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 and I guess <laughs> it, is, it is one of those. And it's probably one of those because like everything has to work in a certain way so that and the relationships then we have with the class relationships you know they work and the country works like that's how it works that's yeah. the that's the machinations i guess yeah. of of how a billion people you know coexist exactly mm. sometimes very hard yeah but um you know like but I, I don't know what else goes on in their world. Like, mm. um, and, and I probably also don't know what goes on in like Dhirubhai Ambani's world. No. So anybody care to take a stab at that? <laughs> I can take a pretty good guess. But, um, <laughs> By the way, Dhirubhai Ambani is one of the most 
one of the richest people in in the country, if not the world. In the world, yeah. the world I think I would say in the world, yeah. yeah. Well, he's not around anymore. Oh, is yeah, he? He, 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 he Beyonce performed at his kid's wedding. That's his Anila. grandkids' wedding. Grandkids. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that's, that's how rich he is. Yeah, Mukesh Ambani. That's right. But yeah. you know, like, and and again, and that's probably why the information. And you think about how we're talking about the mid seventy, late seventies. There was no internet. No. Mm. So how were we to find... I mean, like, even if you think about now social media becoming that, you know, bubble, like, how was the information even traveling? And that's probably why people didn't realize about the um, the sterilization problem that was in um, the rural India. Because, like... Yeah. Especially in the cities growing up middle class, like, no one knew. But then all the information that was being published was censored anyways. That's so right. So... Were they actually being truthful about what was going on? Probably not. Mm. So there was no actual. If newspapers were the only fake ways. News. Mm. Yeah, it actually reminded me of fake news. We did it first because, <laughs> because the time when the emergency was declared and she rounded up all these opposition leaders uh, before they were incarcerated, um, that was the very time when she cut the power off for the area of the city which had all the newspaper agencies. that's right it was a blackout and they couldn't yeah. print and then they had to redact like whole bits of the that's right mm. yeah so they had two preferred news agencies who were allowed to publish information mm. um i think doordarshan mm. and uh, the radio in all india radio mm. they were instructed to send all the news to the prime minister's house so it could be kind of checked cleared. and cleared, cleared for before <laughs> it could actually be relayed. So in an environment like that, you, there's no way they're going to get the real information of what they're up to out. It's just crazy fascism. Like, it's just, uh, it's it's so hard to imagine. So guys, before you learned about the emergency um, and its implications, and especially before you started doing all your research for a fine balance, did you have any impressions of Indira Gandhi and what she meant to India? Alicia, did you want to start? Sure. Uh, I think growing up, uh, we had we had pictures of Indira Gandhi in school in the staff room. She was the first female prime minister of our country. She was uh, called the Iron Lady of India. Uh, as a little girl, she was. I aspired to be like her. I I was. I looked up to her. And uh, fancy dress competitions at school, and and kids dressing up as Mother Teresa and Indira Gandhi, and they used to walk in side by side. So I mean, I grew up with a picture painted for me of of someone that I should be like when I grow up. Mm. Which mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't think that way anymore, but... Yeah, interesting. Mm. Sneha? Well, I grew up idolizing her as well, because, again, coming from a family who was... In pol- Congress. In yeah. Congress, uh, Indira Gandhi was the leader. Um, yeah. So she was always a very strong um, feminist sort of a role model. Icon, yeah. Yep. Mm. Growing up in, you wanted to almost kind of be her uh, when you listened to, you know, everything yeah. that people had India's to say. India's daughter. Yeah, India's that's, daughter. Yeah, that's what she was. And, yeah. and with so many strong male figures all around us, I guess she was that one female character that was running a country Yeah, that made us really look up to her. Mm. And the power she had over people is mm. amazing. She could just draw crowds. And she was charming, right? When you look mm. at pictures, when you look at, you know, the way she yeah. carried herself. Mm. Yeah. You can easily see how someone would want to be like her. Mm. Someone yeah. doesn't know much. Yeah. Face value. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Mm. Uh, Malik, did you have any different opinions of 
I um I, I suppose the way that I related most to Indira Gandhi was the fact that um my mother and and Indira Gandhi both shared the the trait of of having consciously short hair um, oh. throughout <laughs> all of my childhood right. um which was a massive statement in a world where women were yep. supposed to grow out their hair and it was this um, especially in Indian culture in, where in Indian long culture. hair is equated mm. to beautiful and yes um so I I guess that was uh how i mean uh the values that my parents um uh held dear uh, around the house were being calm as much as possible being measured being pragmatic being cautious in what you said um before you said it uh and being very careful and that i saw um reflected in many of the things that indira gandhi either said or um what she would appear like in um mm. in television interviews now this of course is in the late 90s where all of it would have been archive footage and she was long since assassinated um in uh, on halloween in uh, 1984 Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, that's right. Sorry, it just struck me that it was Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, on on the morning of. Yeah. Um, so I I uh, I suppose it's it's um, it's it's an. It's an image you hold uh, growing up, just mm. because it 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 has no. Um, because it comes from archival footage it has no uh relationship to um a historical character and because my parents wouldn't talk about her you had no other um, way of I knowing i had no other way of knowing yeah no it's interesting cuz and that's what it is isn't it like we and and the same for me i also grew up going to not going to but um, you know thinking of her as this amazing feminist icon mm. and she was all of that yeah you know i think we do a disservice to people especially people in power when we think that they can only be one way mm-hmm. and and that absolute power corrupts and i think that's the cliche but it's a cliche for a reason yes. like um and no matter oh the denerus effect mm-hmm. you know um the that that um she you know she was well meaning in her well uh, apparently the the case that started this whole thing um was was quite like there was random things that mm. they accused her of and yeah. um mm. very like they got her on some really tiny technicalities mm. and yes. um that made her go okay that's it you guys don't deserve me yeah. and you don't deserve democracy so we'll take all your rights away mm. yeah. um and 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 then she started by be wanting to be like a disciplinarian okay that yeah. that strict school teacher yeah mm. um but then this this whole thing just cracked and it descended into you know totalitarianism mm. Mm. which is really interesting and i guess for me it's just history is super subjective it is this is so close and this is one of those things that is you know um documented primarily by word of mouth yeah mm. uh and and amazing things like a fine balance which w- without which we wouldn't even be having this discussion around this mm. table like oh, totally. it has definitely been the reason i looked into the emergency more and um you know got interested in the politics of the time and um yeah subjective history do your research people 
Don't don't ever take anything you see, read here for on face value. Never. Like it's the yeah. one thing to take away from all of this. There's yeah. multiple sides, especially in a country as complex uh, as a society as intricate as India, um, of, of a billion plus people. Like lives are just so different and we live in so many different bubbles and all those bubbles have different like venn diagrams of how caste (laughs) class religion all of those things you know Mm. money intersect you know um so much privilege so much power and so many power dynamics that we just take for granted exactly (laughs) exactly and and people are doing so many things through the course of their lifetime Mm. and us having we're literally pulling a magnifying glass on the 20 months yeah. Of the emergency yeah. and how people reacted to it at that time. Mm. There's so much more to it than that. And yeah. I I mean, looking at this research, I'm still looking stuff up as as we go. Uh, I still haven't formed an opinion about Indira Gandhi yet. Yeah, I feel I, like whatever whatever values I had imbued her with <laughs> have definitely been shaken, but not quite changed. Yeah. Mm. Fully. I, Mm. It may interest all of our listeners to, to learn that Indira Gandhi is the Prime Minister in um, uh, certainly post-independence history um, who gave uh, maximum funding to the arts and to theatre in particular. Damn, wow. I do love her a little bit more. So com- <laughs> it's so complicated. I'm so confused. I don't know how I feel about her anymore, guys. Um, oh, no. But hey, thanks for coming along today. I thought that was super, super interesting. Um, just because it's always useful to learn how our peers are feeling in that same space. Like, again, to burst our own bubbles. I think it's really important to keep mm. having these discussions. And let's continue this discussion outside of this podcast and you know make sure we are always you know talking about the politics of the country that is that we grew up in um and it was great and like i said we wouldn't even have this discussion had we not been all involved in a fine balance had the book not existed had the play not been put up by our two amazing production houses so yay um the next episode will be our last in the in um, a fine balance series where we will chat to Amit Odadar again, who is the press founder and historical cultural advisor for a fine balance. And we will be chatting also to Lynn Cardi, who is the associate director of Auckland Theatre Company, about this amazing collaboration. So thank you again, folks, for coming today. And um, thanks to all the listeners for listening. Cheers, guys. Come watch the show. <laughs> Plug. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Script to Stage. You can buy tickets for a fine balance right now at qtheatre.co.nz. The season ends on July 6th, so book now to avoid disappointment.